I'm pretty sure most of you are well aware of the terrorist attacks Hamas committed against Israeli civilians, Israel's disproportionate response targeting Gaza, and the thousands of innocent Palestinian lives lost as a result. The social media discourse about all of this is a mess. Twitter is a cesspool of disinformation, and it's sad because it was once a good space to find credible news sources about breaking news events. See, this disinformation environment is causing everyday people to take sides in the most unproductive ways imaginable. That said, I want black diplomats to help fight the disinformation war by replaying an old episode of a conversation I had with folks who work in Palestine. Back in May, I spoke with Palestinian human rights lawyer Diana Butto and independent journalist Sharif Abdel Kudos about what we get wrong about Palestine and why Israel is given so much favor by the international community, despite its apartheid system against the Palestinian people. I think this old episode can help us make sense of what's happening right now. Here to help break all of this down are Sharif Abdel Kadus, an independent print and television journalist based in New York City and Cairo. He has reported extensively from Palestine and was the lead host of Al Jazeera's documentary on Shireen Abdul-Akhles uh, uh, killing. And also with us is Diana Butu, a Canadian-Palestinian human rights lawyer based in Palestine. First of all, I am honored and feel privileged that the both of you have taken time to appear on my podcast. And so I just want to start off before we really get into the nitty gritty of what's going on in your own uh, work. From a mental health standpoint, I want to ask the both of you, and I'll start with Deanna. How, how are you doing? You're in Palestine right now and you're in the thick of everything. I just want to check in on you. Thank you. Thank you, Terrell, for, for having me. And, and really, thank you for asking um, the question because we never get asked this about how it is that we're feeling. You know, I, I don't know how to really summarize my feelings other than to say that it's been it's been a, it's been a terrible year um, and it's been a, an, a really difficult couple of weeks. And I say this because we're seeing not only a heavy, um, heavy attacks, Israeli attacks on Palestinians, but also highest number of Palestinians killed in such a long period of time. And all of it because Israel can do it. And so we live with a sense that tomorrow is going to be worse than today. And it's, it is, that's the way it is. We, it is the fact that tomorrow is worse than today and the day after tomorrow is worse than, than, than tomorrow and so on. And, and so we, we wake up to bad news, we go to bed to bad news, and in between you're just left trying to cope with um, trying to have a semblance of a life knowing that this is a government that, that without, without exaggeration, wants to get rid of you. And, and, uh, and so it's been, it's been difficult. This has been a, a difficult couple of weeks with everything from the 20 Palestinians killed in the past uh, little over 24 hours. Khabar Adnan, a man who had gone on hunger strike a number of times, this, this had been a sixth hunger strike, 
who stayed on hunger strike for 87 days. And all that he was waiting was for, um, for a bail hearing. They wouldn't even grant him that. That they still, the Israelis still have not released his body to his family, even though, remember, he's never been convicted of anything. And that this becomes so normalized inside Israel. It's just so normalized. And it's my, my fear is that it, that it becomes just part of this background noise that we live with every day. Sharif, I'm going to ask you the same question, brother. How, how are you feeling? Well, I, uh, you know, it's, it's different for me. I, d I don't live in Palestine. The last time I was there was in um, October to uh, work on the story about the killing of Shirin Abu Akhle. Uh, but uh, as Diana mentioned, you know, this, this upswing in violence is uh, very difficult to witness from afar. You know, um, it's really just an intensification and continued consolidation of Israel's settler colonial project which requires uh, systemic and sustained levels of violence really in order to be maintained. So, you know, raids and arrests and uh, land expropriation, settlement building, enclosures, checkpoints, um, the, the, the strangulation and bombardment of Gaza that we're seeing right now. Uh, this is, you know, this is not new. This is, uh, it comes up and down in waves. And we're seeing a particularly vicious one over this past year and just over these last 48 hours, uh, you know, at least at the time of this uh, interview, 21 Palestinians um, have been killed uh, in Gaza alone, including six children. Um, uh, and, you know, two Palestinians were killed uh, also today um, or yesterday in a raid uh, by Israeli soldiers um, on a in a town in the northern uh, occupied West Bank. And this is exactly the type of uh, action that has been escalating these almost near daily raids into uh, cities and towns across the occupied West Bank that Shirin Abu Akhle was covering when she herself was killed uh, exactly a year ago. So, um, you know, it's uh, it's part and parcel of this uh, this ongoing uh, settler colonial project uh, that uh, is kind of on steroids. right? We're now. definitely going to get into this settler colonial project because I was in Palestine a little more than a month ago to witness it. And I have to tell you that, you know, it, it was a particularly dehumanizing experience. And as a black man who lives in America and is very much keen on the injustices and indignity of my community, for me to be able to, as an American citizen, walk on the streets where Palestinians, because of who they are, are not allowed to walk, was sickening to me. It was it, it was the most, um, and, and even just right now, I, I just feel overcome with sadness and a certain degree of shame that I, as a, a citizen, given my own history, I was able to walk these streets. I was able to go through pa uh, through checkpoints that Palestinians, because of who they are, had to stop. I, you know, and so I definitely saw this settler colonial project, uh, Sharif, that you're talking about. But because you are the lead host of Al Jazeera's documentary titled The Killing of Shireen Abu Akhle, I want to talk to you about this one year of anniversary and, and pretty much what we all should be thinking about because everyone has been heralding her work as being the gold standard of what it means to report from Palestine and tell us about your pro about the project you were participating in and what we should be thinking about 
as we as we uh, commemorate um, her, her, her tragic killing. Well, really, this was an investigative documentary trying to provide a forensic accounting um, of her death um, on May 11th last year, uh, how she was killed by Israeli forces, relying on video footage from that day and her colleagues who were eyewitnesses to the incident, and also searching for accountability. Uh, Shirina Boakle was um, a Palestinian, but also a U.S. citizen. And so the U.S. government has a duty uh, to pursue justice in her case. Um, but as we show in the documentary, and as is clear, I think, to many people, uh, the U.S. administration, the Biden administration, has largely adopted uh, the Israeli narrative, which, um, which basically says that they likely killed her, but that uh, there was no intentionality a claim that they don't explain how they determined uh, that conclusion. And that contradicts a lot of the evidence, both video footage and eyewitness testimony. But just to give uh, people listening a sense of who Shireen was, um, you know, Shireen joined Al Jazeera in 1997, not long after the channel was founded. And she was hired as one of their first uh, field correspondents. And in a career that spanned nearly a quarter of a century, she, she became one of the most prominent journalists of her generation. She was a familiar face and a trusted reporter for millions uh, across uh, the Arab world and internationally. And she was very dedicated to her job and to the critical role uh, that journalism plays, especially in a place like occupied Palestine. And we saw um, Palestinians come together after her death uh, in um, a display of unity that uh, I think uh, rocked the Israeli occupation because um, Shadin managed to unite uh, Palestinians across class, across gender, across political affiliation. And we saw this massive turnout in Jerusalem on the day of her funeral um, be to show how much she meant uh, to Palestinians. And we also saw the Israeli uh, police attack the funeral viciously, beating mourners with batons, almost making the casket drop. And so uh, you saw the, this dual kind of expression of uh, Palestinians uh, coming out in solidarity for Shireen and then uh, Israeli forces uh, trying to quell those voices. Diana, your, your thoughts. Oh, where do I begin? Um, I, I first got the news of Shireen's assassination at 7.16 in the morning on May the 11th. And the first news that I received was that an, it all it said was Al Jazeera reporter killed in Jenin. And um, immediately, I, I was we were friends. Immediately, the circle of friends started to call one another to find out who it was. And when we found out that it was Shireen, it was both a sense of of um, kind of disbelief, but also it, it just also shock, also shock. And as anybody knows who's ever experienced um, the loss of a loved one, you, you, you go through different phases and, the, and your first um, reaction is to then think of what are the next steps? What, what needs to be done? And in Shireen's case, it, it wasn't just a question of what are the next steps, but having to witness her be murdered twice because immediately the Israeli Hasbro, the Israeli media campaign came out and spun their assassination of her. And, and let me be clear, Charles, in saying that she was wearing, um, she was wearing a, a press jacket. She was wearing, um, she was wearing a helmet 
And they sh the sniper shot her right at the base of where the, the helmet ends. There was nothing unintentional about it. Um, she had made herself known to the army so that they saw, they saw her. And I knew Shitty. She was the person who taught me what to do at, at demonstrations. I knew how careful she was. And immediately this, this press machine kicked into action to blame Shirin for her own death, to then blame other Palestinians for her death. And it all just became part of this, this regular and routine method that the Israelis have, have fine-tuned to somehow distract and blame everybody else rather than accept responsibility. So we were dealing with our own shock, our own grief, and then having to witness her be murdered a second time. And then when she, as, as Sharif mentioned, um, she not only had a, a funeral in Jerusalem, in which was attacked, but she probably had the longest funeral procession. It started in Jenin, which is a little bit over 100 kilometers north of, of Jerusalem, all the way down to Nablus, and then from Nablus um, to Ramallah, and then from Ramallah to Jerusalem all with thousands of people, um, if not millions, attending her, her, her funeral. And the, 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 the shocking part about all of this is that the Israelis not only, they not only um, effectively murdered her twice, if, if that can be such a thing, but they tried to even control our own mourning and our own grief. And that's something that a year later, we're still grappling with that we are, we're still in a place and space where, as Shadi have mentioned, where her family and her friends are still demanding accountability. And the, the, the statements that have been received are, are just so, you know, so mundane, so run of the mill, like, oh, we mourn Shadian's loss, but effectively saying we're going to do nothing about it. So a year later, I, I'm still, um, her, when I hear her her voice, I still weep. I still find myself going back to her messages and can't believe that she's gone. And, and then I'm also very angry that, that, that while there was so much um, attention given to Shadian's murder, that nobody has bothered to even do the bare minimum to hold that sniper, and he was a sniper, and they know exactly where who he is. They know exactly where he was positioned to hold that person accountable, and so we're left with an incredible sense of loss. One just one last word about Shirin and her and and who she was. Um, as Shirin mentioned, she she had been a she had been working for Jazeera for a quarter of a century, and what made Shirin one of the most incredible journalists out there was. She didn't do the mundane of just reporting numbers and what the government said and what this person said. She got in deep and, and went to houses. She met with, she met with the families of martyrs. She met with, with, the chil with children. She met with um, political prisoners and their families. She met with families whose houses were just destroyed by the Israelis. She met with families who were about to be thrown out of their houses. She met with everybody, and what she did was she used this, this great uh, position that she had, and she turned the microphone and gave them the microphone. 
and allowed Palestinians to speak. And, and so it's, it's that form of, um, it's that part of her reporting that I miss so much, but I also miss her as Shireen. I also miss her as Shireen. I'd also like to add just very briefly, you know, I, I echo everything Diana said, and, and also Shireen also, she just didn't report on the, on the pain of Palestine, but also the joys. She loved uh, doing stories about just human interest stories, about pets, about sports, um, showing, you know, just Palestinian life. Um, and, and this was something that, you know, was so important, I think, because often the, the only thing we see coming out of Palestine is the pain, is, um, is death, um, and, and you don't see these other kinds of reports. And I think also her killing is so pivotal and important to have justice in because this is one of the most prominent journalists of her generation killed in broad daylight while wearing uh, a flak jacket and helmet with the word press emblazoned on it with no crossfire in the area with it most of it caught on camera and her colleagues there to witness it all and she's a u.s citizen not that it should matter but she's a u.s citizen the main backer and funder of israel so if we can't find justice for shireen what chance does anyone in Palestine have? I want to get into that. What justice, what, 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 what can the Palestinians seek if it doesn't happen for people like her? You know, I'm not unfamiliar to conflict zones. As you both know, I covered the war in Ukraine. I'm actually going to be traveling to Ukraine in the next couple of weeks. I'll be based there for a year and a half and uh, be going to the front. And I covered the invasion during the first uh, few months when it began. And... I had the flak jacket, I had press on my, you know, my vest and I had the helmet. So I know that. And I've been in situations where, you know, it, it gets very precarious when, when, when you're, you know, when you're in the actual crossfire and snipers do know who they're targeting and they're trained to do so. And that shot very much is intentional. And as far as I'm concerned and based on the reporting of Al Jazeera and other networks, I am thoroughly convinced that she was killed on purpose. That is my opinion based on what I have seen. And I my mind cannot be changed based, based on that reporting. I think it's pretty clear. You know, what troubles me is the lack of um, consistency that the U.S. government exercises when we are determining who is America's friends versus their enemies. You take, for example, with Russia which is clearly waging a genocide against the Ukrainian people. Uh, the, the evidence speaks, speaks definitely to that, and I, I cover that in, in, as an area of my expertise. That's what's happening, and I think that the uh, Putin definitely is a war criminal. I also think that past presidents who have invaded Iraq, you know, I think, I think that America has its own set of war criminals, without a doubt. I also, but, but what I also am trouble with Sharif is that what's going on in uh, against the Palestinians is straight up apartheid. And why is it Sharif that the American government is not really going after the Netanyahu um, administration for its crimes against Palestinians, but also just the state of Israel in general, because it predates him. You know, why is there this inequity in the ways in which the United States 
targets Israel. You know, it doesn't target Israel, but it targets other countries for the war crimes that the Israelis are committing against Palestinians. The United States has long been the main backer and funder of Israel, and Israel couldn't exist as a colonial settler state, as an apartheid state, without this backing. Perhaps this is one colonial settler state backing another. What it perceives as its geopolitical interests in the region uh, are served by Israel, although I would argue, and many people would argue, that they don't serve them at all whatsoever, and they're actually very, very damaging to America's geopolitical interests in the region. Um, and this is what is shocking, is that there is this blanket impunity given to Israel more than any other country that is embarrassing even to, to successive U.S. administrations, Republican and Democratic alike, that uh, you know they will announce new settlement expansion right before a visit to Israel or right before a comment about the so-called peace process. So, you know, I, I, I can't say to, to why, but uh, because it is almost absurd. Uh, the way that this backing continues. We see it in, in Shirin's case. We see it in uh, almost every case. And, and there's a complete disparity in the way Palestinians are dealt with and the way um, Israelis are dealt with. And finally, as you mentioned, you're mentioning Russia and so forth. You know, last week was um, World Press Freedom Day and there was the White House Correspondents Association dinner. And President Biden rightly uh, spoke of the cases of American journalists who are targeted, Evan Gershkovich, Austin Tice, who disappeared from a Syrian military checkpoint 12 years ago, he said nothing about Shirin Abu Akhle. Why? She's also a U.S. citizen, if we're going by that rubric. He's refused to meet with uh, Shirin's family, both when uh, he went to travel to the region and on their visits to D.C. He met with Evan Gershkovich's family. This is insulting, really troubling, and also very telling. Absolutely. So uh, I'm going to play an Al Jazeera clip uh, from roughly a year ago in which a Amnesty International um, produced a report that calls what Israel is doing against Palestinians as apartheid, and we're going to play that now. Amnesty International says Israel has built up an array of policies, laws, military coercion, and economic and social discrimination that amounts to oppression and domination over Palestinians in the areas it controls. In short, it says, a system of apartheid. We are here today to call on the international community to take resolute action against the crime of humanity being perpetrated in order to maintain the system of apartheid. The report highlights last year's tensions over threatened displacements of Palestinians from their homes in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood of occupied East Jerusalem and the military and communal violence that followed. It sets out a catalog of instances and techniques whereby Palestinians have been displaced from land in Israel and in the occupied territories. A settler has confiscated thousands of hectares while Palestinian shepherds can't graze their sheep. We want protection for our herders from the settlers. But it goes much further back in Israel's history, analyzing basic laws and long-term policies, it says, designed to guarantee a Jewish majority and Jewish control. So, Deanna, a lot of people, when they hear the word apartheid, we think about South Africa, and we're not used to hearing it in the Palestinian context. So can you please help break it down for why uh, an organization like Amnesty International would call it apartheid and 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 yeah, let's just start there. Sure. Um, look, Charlie, I think there's it's more than a, than amnesty. Let me step back. 
the the first organizations to label it apartheid were Palestinian ones, and they did that about 20 years ago in the year uh, 2001, 2002, uh, during the Durban conference, anti-racism conference in Durban, South Africa. Um, in South Africa itself, South African organizations came out and said the same. The late Archbishop Desmond Tutu uh, also declared it apartheid and and many said that this was, and I think it was him, he said this is even worse than the apartheid that we witnessed in South Africa. And, and then more recently, you know, fast forward, and we had B'Tselem, an Israeli human rights organization that labeled it apartheid. Human Rights Watch has said that it's apartheid and now Amnesty International. And so there's this like wall of consensus across human rights organizations that call it apartheid. Why? Because it is. And what is apartheid? It means that it's a system that's designed to privilege one group over another. And in the case of Israel, the whole system is designed to privilege Jewish Israelis, in fact, anybody who's Jewish, really, over Palestinians. That means everything from who's allowed to, to get citizenship in the country. It's only people who are Jewish who are allowed to acquire citizenship in the country um, without being born there. Only, only if you're Jewish, you can immigrate from anywhere around the world and instantly acquire citizenship. Whereas my family, my, my late aunt, who was a Palestinian refugee, born in Palestine, raised in Palestine, married in Palestine. She, had, she gave birth to her eldest son in Palestine. She was never able to return because she wasn't Jewish. So it's a whole system that's designed to privilege one group over another. But, you know, I'll be, I'll be even like, sort of more blunt. I don't think we need more labels to describe what Israel's doing. We know that what it's doing is bad. I don't need, I, I'm a lawyer, I don't need to add another legal label to, to convince people that bombing refugee camps is illegal, to convince people that destroying Palestinian schools is bad, to convince people that, that uprooting families from their houses is wrong, or that... Um, that uh, you know, destroying houses or, or kicking people out or, or putting checkpoints in or having Israeli-only roads or having roads that Palestinians can't go on, as you saw in Hebron. We don't need legal jargon for that. We don't need additional jargon. We know that it's wrong and the world knows it, that it's wrong. The big problem is, is that everybody's looking for a way to try to capture the attention of people so that they do something about it. And that's what this whole, the whole push of these, of these, this apartheid, use, labeling it apartheid has been, is to try to get people to act. So it's not that we don't know. They know. Israel knows. In fact, Israel has itself said that, uh, that it's apartheid. The Israeli leaders themselves have said it. But it's just a question of what action is being done. And and it's been um, seven and a half decades, 75 years of, of the international community really just remaining silent. And not only the international community, I don't have faith in states. I, I, I never have, and I don't think I ever will. Um, but people, people, people. And, and the, the whole push now is that we as people can hold Israel to account. We can do it through supporting the boycott movement, supporting the divestment movement, supporting sanctions on Israel. The same tools that were applied against apartheid South Africa can be apart, uh, applied against Israel, and they should be, because otherwise we, we're creating a legacy in which 
um, in which supremacy is allowed to, to reign and in which people's lives are viewed as completely disposable, which is what, ha- what it has been now for 75 years with Israel. Sharif, I need your help with with a couple of things. I went, I was there for six. I was in Palestine Israel for seven days. I went to Hebron. I was in Jerusalem. I went to uh, a few places, including um, we didn't go into any settlements, uh, any Jewish settlements. But um, um, when I was traveling <clears throat> through Palestine, you know, I was later tweeting about it. And I got a lot of, you know, to put it nicely, feedback. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it was my first time in the Middle East in general. And I got so much, as as much respect that I got from people who thanked me for, for a talk, using my platform to talk about what I'm, what, what I saw. I got it equal amount of resistance from people who are calling me anti-Semitic. Um, I got a, a, a lot of people who were telling me that my eyes were lying to me. You know, um, you know, the, the, the live human beings that were in front of me and telling me about their experience. In fact, we know that guy, David Stern, that settler who was shot we were at a falafel place just an hour or so before he was shot. Um, and I just saw how the whole town just sh- just completely shut down. And the ways that the uh, Israeli defense forces, they had their guns trained on every single car. I saw this, okay? And I just talked about what I saw. And people said, that's not true. What's also, but I guess what's troubling to me is that I, is it me that maybe my, my method of, of telling the story is off because I want these governments to respond just like you, Deanna, have been doing for years. And just like you, Sharif, what the hell am I doing wrong? Um, and, and, and not conveying the message and I apologize for this language. What the Israeli government is doing to these Palestinians is fucked up. People know. People understand. I think there's a difference when we talk about governments and how they act and public awareness. And I really think there's been a real shift in this country over the last two decades that is perceptible, for sure. The way you... uh, For example, you, you went to Palestine with Matt Doss, who is a Bernie Sanders foreign policy advisor. Um, having someone like that in the Democratic Party would have been kind of unthinkable two decades ago. Um, you have uh, uh, people in Congress uh, who are speaking out quite forcefully. So, but, but even more so, you have a generation now that through constant exposure to all of these things that you're talking about are aware. You have uh, a publication like Jewish Currents, a fantastic publication that's really covering what's happening. You have a generation of young Jewish Americans who are aware of what's, that this does not reflect uh, their values and that it needs to end. So I think that there has been a shift, um, but I think there's also a way that these governments further entrench these policies. We've seen right-wing shifts across the world uh, that have happened and kind of resisting um, you know, these public calls for this system, this, this, this apartheid system, this ethnocracy, whatever we want to call it, to change. Uh, 
unfortunately, you know, I've been going to Palestine on and off for the past kind of 12 years. And every time you go, you see the architecture of occupation, the architecture of, of apartheid manifest on the ground in new ways. So the main checkpoint between the West Bank and Jerusalem is called Kalandia. That used to be just, a, you know, this, this kind of few roadblocks. Um, and now it's essentially this sprawling border complex. Uh, you see the wall and how it's torn through communities. You see new military watchtowers. You see surveillance cameras. Um, you see new roads for settlers only, new permanent checkpoints, and, and always the settlements growing and expanding. And you see Gaza being bombed repeatedly, neighborhoods being razed. So, um, you know, we need to do much more. And I, I would just add this, this final point, because I think, especially people in this country, we have to think... We can't think of Palestine as some distant and unique injustice. We, it has to be tied into all of our struggles because it really is kind of a battleground that is at the center of a global struggle between the forces of control and those of liberation. And it has these ramifications that are global. So we can kind of think, think of Palestine as the laboratory of the future. All of these checkpoints, the sieges, the psyops, the algorithms, the architecture, all of these are commodities that are sold to future repressions. Israel exports all of these, all of the spyware to around the world. And this is the future that awaits all of us unless we fight back. So people need to tie these struggles together. And as Israel exports all of these forces of control, we can also look and see what does Palestine export. And Palestine has been resisting this. Palestine still exists despite the 75 years of occupation and attempts to erase it. And we, as people who work in social movements, uh, as journalists who care about justice, we can learn from, from that struggle as well. Deanna, I'll let you have the last word. She, Shireen, uh, was a friend of yours. Tell us how the world, people like us who care, our listeners, should honor should, should honor her passing, her, 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 tragi- her tragic killing. How should we honor her? The best way to honor her is to demand for accountability and to demand for change. By accountability, I mean that this isn't just a question of the one soldier who shot her. There's a whole system there that killed her. There's a whole system that murdered her. And they didn't just do it once. As I said, they did it repeated times by first blaming her, deflecting, then in a sort of, oh, oops, sorry, maybe, There's a whole system of individuals who need to be held to account. And in the United States, that accountability also means holding the U.S. government to account. The U.S. is not just Israel's funder. Uh, They're not just Israel's enabler. They they fund Israel. They support Israel. they, They are the ones who punish anybody who tries to go and to hold Israel accountable, including whether we try an international criminal court or in other international fora, the U.S. is there. Uh, The U.S. has used its its veto in the United Nations Security Council more times with regard to Israel than any other subject. And and so the the level of, um, of, of enabling, of protection, of, of, uh, of punishment that is meted out to us that also has to be has to be held to account, and there there can and there there must and there can be change, and there can be change by us, as Sharif said, focusing on on what um, making these connections between what Israel is about and what it is that it is exporting, and we can do that. 
That's the first thing. The second thing that I think um, how we should remember Shireen and, and to honor her legacy is to remember the, the depth of her reporting and how it is that she how it is that she gave Palestinians a voice to be able to speak on our own. You know, as a, as a Palestinian who's, who's been on many, um, many TV stations and the mainstream media, I feel as though it's never, uh, we're never there um, to, to, for knowledge, but we're there to be interrogated. And, and one thing that, um, that Shireen did brilliantly was she gave Palestinians the microphone, and I wish other people would learn from her. Um, I wish that, that they would honor her legacy in, in that way as well. Uh, one last thing about the feedback um, that you get, and I'm gonna use the same term that you <laughs> use, the feedback. A few things actually. First is, um, is that that feedback comes, Terrell, because they don't want you to report on it anymore. They want you to feel intimidated so that, you're, so that you won't report on Palestine, so you don't talk about it anymore. It's one of the tools that they've always used. Is it's, an, it's a mechanism to shut it down, shut down any discussion. It's a mechanism to silence. And you're stronger than that. And other people are stronger than that. And I encourage people to see past that because that's all that it is. It's an attempt to try to shut down the voices. And, and we have to be stronger than all of these bots and all of these um, paid, uh, paid trolls that are out there that really want to make us uh, as we would say in Arabic, um, make our eyes lie, like not believe what you even see. And once you see, Terrell, once you see, you cannot unsee. You cannot unsee what you saw in Hebron. You cannot unsee it. And that's what they're trying to do to you. So they're trying to make you unsee it so that you, you doubt yourself. Um, but they won't be successful. No, and Deanna, I'm going to tell you that I'm not going to unsee what I saw. I'm actually going to go back again so I can see more. And to your advice, my mission will be to give the Palestinians the microphone. So you gave me my marching orders and I'm going to do it. And I'll see. And if you're there, I'll see you. And Sharif, if we happen to be, we're in, we're in New York, we're in New York city, bro. Like, you know, we can see each other here, but, um, I, I'm, I'm, this is a passion of mine because I really care about humanity and justice for everybody. Everybody's freedom. The message for this show and Black Diplomats is that one group of people can't be free while other group of people are, are oppressed. I don't care if it's in Eastern Europe with the Ukrainians. I don't care if it's with Palestinians. I want everybody's freedom. I want everybody to feel the totality of their humanity. And that means calling every oppressive state out, including America, which I have no problem doing. Uh, I, I, and so I'm definitely going to take that advice uh, to heart. I just want to thank you both for taking time to come on the show. It's been an honor and a privilege and I want to thank all of my listeners for tuning in to this week's episode of Black Diplomats Podcast please give us a five star rating on Spotify iTunes or wherever you listen to us and also support our work financially on Cash App at 
cash sign at black diplomats um venmo at black diplomats or on paypal at payme.me slash black diplomats and the music you heard at the top of the show and is playing right now is by ink prod the name of the song is called dreams thanks again for listening and talk to you next week Got to go get this.